Lord Jesus, thank you that we can gather in your name. Lord, thank you that we can look into your word, we can read of you, we can think about you, we can find out what you are like, the Son of Man, God's King. Please show us tonight things about you. Please help me to speak clearly. Please amaze us and challenge our hearts. Amen. I'm up here again speaking about one of the easy passages. My, my last two were self-mutilation and divorce. The end times are quite refreshing. It, it's also got one of the most ironic phrases in scripture in there. Did you spot it in verse 14? Let the reader understand. Oh, thanks, Mark. That's really clarified it. Uh, the thing is, if you speak to ten theologians about this, you're going to get ten different opinions about what the details mean. Um, Mark is shifting here away from straightforward narrative, just recording Jesus' relatively straightforward parable-based teaching, to a, a big chunk of what's called apocalyptic teaching. It's the same style as was used in Revelation or in Daniel in the Old Testament, so if you're just visiting today, if you're just dipping your toes in, exploring Christianity, that this passage will feel even weirder than usual. I'm sorry for that. It's because it's a whole different genre of scripture. It's prophetic. It claims to be revealing the actual reality around us. But as it does that, it often uses hard symbolic language. And it can be hard for us to pin down exactly what it's referring to. It could be the speaker's present experience, it could be near future, it could be distant future. It could be for everyone, it could be restricted to a certain group of people. It, it might not find its fulfilment for the end of time, it might be fulfilled throughout everyday experience, or any of those possibilities together. It's hard to tell confidently. Fortunately, the beginning and the end are clear-cut, and they give us our anchor points. And from that we can explore a bit into what I think is deliberate uncertainty in the middle section. More of that soon. But first let's just turn our attention to this poor, unnamed, embarrassed disciple in verse 1. I, I really feel for this guy. It's like something from the office. It's so awkward. I don't know if you've ever, ever had a meeting like this where you feel a bit out of your depth. And... You're keeping quiet because you don't really know what to say, but you, you have to make some kind of contribution. So you, you try and work something safe out, something relevant but innocuous, and, and, and you float out a fairly anodyne comment, and it sinks like a stone. Have you ever had that? I have a lot. It, this guy in, in verse 1, I don't know, maybe he wants to impress Jesus, Maybe he loves God and just wants to show it somehow. But he's seen how the Pharisees have got taken down when they say stuff. He, he doesn't want to touch on the commandments or on charity. Those are tricky waters, who'd have guessed. He thinks, I know. It's a great building. Everyone loves the temple. This is the beating heart of Israel. It's safe ground. Look, teacher. What massive stones. What magnificent buildings. And the poor guy could not have got it more wrong. He, he's just shown that he's missed the point of the last three days. For us, it's, it's the last two chapters. If you flick back to Mark 11, 
verse 1 to 11, you see Jesus arriving in Jerusalem, riding on a colt. He's the prophesied king in Zechariah 9. Praised and acknowledged by the people. They're they're shouting, Hosanna, Saviour, save us, salvation. And they're acknowledging him as the one who comes in the name of the Lord, as the one who brings David's kingdom to completion. And in verse 11, he triumphantly arrives at the temple courts. And then he goes to sleep elsewhere. And then on day two, he comes back. And in chapter 11, verses 15 to 16, he causes havoc. He's horrified by what they've done to the temple. He speaks with power and conviction so that in verse 18, the crowd's hanging on his every word, but the temple-based priests and teachers are terrified and angry. He paints them like a, a fruitless fig tree in that chapter, cursed by God. And for their part, they start to look for ways to kill him. And he comes back on day three, in chapter 11, verse 27. And from there through the rest of chapter 12, you've got the various religious authorities coming at him to test and trap. And he calls them down. And he speaks openly against them. And he shows superior teaching authority. And then in chapter 12, verses 28 to 34, there's this one good teacher who acknowledges him. And the rest are silenced. They don't dare challenge him. And so then in verses 35 to 40, he rejects the teachers of the law and their interpretation of Messiah. And in 41 to 44, he rejects the apparent blessing of the rich and the powerful in favour of the widow's mind. And this bit then, chapter 13, it comes at the end of that third day. And what's Jesus doing? He's leaving the temple. He's turning his back on it. He is not dwelling there. And so he says, no. All of this gets torn down. It's rejection. He's passing judgment. In fact, before he even begins to unpack what he means in verse 3, they've gone down into the valley and they've come up onto the Mount of Olives. They're looking across at the temple from a different mountain. They're speaking against it. Now I guess it is pretty tough for us to get to grips with how hard that is for the disciples to hear. The temple, it was the heart of Israel. The first temple had been God's house, his palace on earth. It housed the ark of his covenant. When it was built, his presence filled it. For a short time, it it seemed to be the completion of generations of promises to Abraham and beyond. God's people, God's place, under God's rule, for the blessing of the whole earth. That came to tragedy. Israel got taken into exile, but eventually God restored them again in another mini-exodus. And they built this new temple, and it was just a shadow of the original, but now it's wrapped around with promises of Messiah. 
and of restoration of Israel, of one day having religious and political freedom, is the heart of God's coming kingdom. So for them, surely this building, this mountain, this is where God's going to work, isn't it? These mighty stones, not in here, but these mighty stones, they're going to stand for eternity. Religious authority, the priesthood, that's here. Riches and prosperity, those are here. This is what blessing looks like. What's it like for them to hear Jesus speak against them? Think of 56 rowdy SNP MPs standing in the heart of your government mocking tradition and promising change. Or imagine some official public condemnation of your university that essentially renders all your study and your work and your tuition fees irrelevant. Or or think of, after years of hard work, the damning inspection report of your school, or your hospital, or your workplace, or your denomination, or organisation, whatever it is. And maybe we've got a bit of how it feels. Actually, I I think this is a good town to read this passage in. You can get the punch of it. Because on a a sunny morning, when the city centre is quite quiet, if you wander out onto Broad Street, it's lovely, isn't it? It's amazing. It's staggering. What, What great buildings, what mighty stones, what dreaming spires. What dazzling heights of intellectual achievement and and wondrous technologies and deep insight into the human condition and it won't be left standing. It will be ground to dust when God's finished. Isn't that a difficult thought? I guess most of us like to think of God as constructive. When I'm thinking about stuff like this, I'm often drawn to Psalm 97. Psalm 97 verse 1 goes like this. The Lord reigns. Let the earth be glad. Let the distant shores rejoice. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Okay, so far so psalm-like. But then verse 3. Fire goes before him and consumes his foes on every side. His lightning lights up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness and all people see his glory. And the truth there and in this passage about God is that when his glory is revealed, it can be profoundly destructive. And that's good news. Let the earth be glad. He he will build. He is a builder. He will establish a mighty kingdom. He'll build his church. It's the temple of his son. Of course he'll build it. But when he reveals himself, and when he shows his glory, everything that's in opposition to God Everything that is not built on his foundation will melt away like hot wax. And so here we have Jesus sat with his disciples. He's left the temple behind. It's rejected. And he says, destruction is coming. 
Understandably, they want to know what they're in for, when it's going to happen. So, so what are Jesus' notes for the coming apocalypse? Explain it, teacher, they say. Let's quickly scan through verses 5 to 27 and see what it's going to be like. I think there are three sections to it. Verses 5 to 13, there's the disciples' experience, what they're going to experience. In verses 14 to 23, there is the destruction of the land, which is pretty horrific. And then in verses 24 to 27, there's the glorious coming of the sun. And running through all of those, there are some key themes. We're not going to explore all of it, because we can't be sure what all of it means, but, but we can see this. The first theme is they're not to be deceived. They're not to be conned into investing their hope in the wrong places. Conned into investing their hope in what's happening there and then. They're not to build little temples for themselves. Not to stick their faith in other people's promises. That's there in verse 6, in verses 21 and 22. There are going to be false teachers. There'll be people who come and say, it's all about this. Follow me. And we'll be sorted. Or we can have God's blessing already if we only do such and such. Here and now, peace and prosperity can be yours. And Jesus says, no, don't be taken in. When the Son of Man comes, you'll know about it. See verses 24 to 26. The sun's darkened. Heavenly bodies are shaken and people see the Son of Man coming in glory. Jesus returns, we'll be left with no doubt. If it's tomorrow or in a year or whenever. Until then, don't be deceived. Don't be taken in. Don't kid yourself that there's security. Don't build your own temples. There's no other good foundation except him. After this, the Jewish priesthood and political power waxes strong for a while. They get to the point where they even think they can reject the occupying Roman forces. It doesn't end well. But there was no shortage of people counselling that times were good. Saying that the blessing was there. That God's kingdom was already established. They had plenty of followers. They were wrong. Don't be deceived. Second thing. And harder, I think. Don't be surprised by hard times. Even apparent disaster. Jesus has just pronounced judgment on the temple. God is going to break out against it. It will melt like wax. False teachers might promise peace and prosperity, but God promises the opposite for anything that is not built on his foundations. Even the mountains melt before him. And so verses 7 to 8. If you hear of wars and nations rising against each other or disaster and famine, don't, don't be surprised. It's not a failure of God's sovereignty. There are dreadful times coming. The disciples, they're going to be betrayed and hated by those around them. That's there in verses 12 and 13. 
Don't be surprised. There'll be dreadful times coming for their nation. It's horrific. We can't be completely sure of what verse 14 refers to, but it's probably some utter desecration of their holy place. It's probably AD 70 when the Romans destroy the temple, shatter the nation of Judea, and there's appalling panic and suffering. The the historian Josephus recorded that about 1.1 million people died in the siege of Jerusalem. Don't be surprised. There's a danger with this kind of passage, I think, that that we sort of harden our hearts to tragedy. Christians have sometimes seen natural disasters and not responded well. We just catalogued it as, okay, that's God's judgment. And they're not worried. We we can't advocate that, obviously. Elsewhere in Scripture, it's crystal clear. We're to model Christ's love. It's show compassion to those who suffer. We're to generously love and care for the needy as we've been loved and provided for ourselves. And any church which doesn't support charity like that or relief is pretty suspect. But don't be surprised by it. Don't paint it as a failure of God's promise. Here it, it's promised judgment. On a nation who, who with their priests set themselves against and slay the Holy One of God. It, it's promised judgment here on a world which has steadfastly set itself against God's ways. And it's a judgment which in some ways is slow in coming, maybe 40 years or a lifetime or, or longer. 2 Peter 3 is worth reading later. It speaks to that. But that slowness, that limiting of destruction, that's born of God's mercy. We've got that here as well in verse 20. Sin is astounding patient. God keeps calling people back to him. He keeps giving them ways to return. But judgment has been pronounced. Don't be surprised. Don't be deceived. Don't be surprised. Third thing, be on your guard and stand firm. It's clear that the disciples have some tough times ahead, right? They're not set aside from the coming judgment. They're right in the midst of it. That's there in verses 9 to 13. They'll be arrested and flogged. They'll be dragged before trials of various types. But they're to stand firm. Be on guard. Why? Well, because God's at work in this. We've got that in verses 10 to 11. It's by the disciples that Jesus' message gets spread to the nations. It's by his spirit that they're equipped. We've got it in verse 20. Even amidst the coming turmoil for Jerusalem, the Lord has chosen his elect and protects them. They can stand firm because their God is at work in them and through them and for them. And they can stand firm as well because ultimately he will have his way. Those who stand firm will be saved in verse 13. Or or verse 23, they've been told everything that's coming. And ultimately, when the Sovereign Lord comes, when the Son of Man is revealed in verse 27, he'll gather his elect. 
Nothing will pluck them from his hand. Hard times ahead then. Disciples, they're going to face genuine persecution. There's going to be destruction in Judea before they ultimately see the Son of Man. It doesn't quite answer the question they ask in verse 4, does it? When is this happening? Perhaps unsurprisingly, even now, we've got a lot of different opinions. Some will interpret this as only ultimately fulfilled at the end of time when Jesus returns. And so the various signs would apply to everyday Christian experience. That doesn't quite sit right with me, I have to say. Verses 9 to 11, they, they feel more specific, like they were about Acts and the early church. Verses 14 to 19 feel more specific, as if they're describing a particular event. Well then there's the promise in verse 30 that this generation would see the fulfilment. It could be taken to mean this age of mankind, but it's a stretch. Other people would say very strongly, this refers to a particular event and only that. Usually they'd pick the siege of Jerusalem, 40 years later, ends in AD 70, and the temple and the city are destroyed. The Roman commander Titus, interestingly, reportedly refused credit for it. He, he described himself as just an agent of the Jewish God's wrath. But then the problem with that is that it doesn't quite fit verses 26 to 27. Even if the angels are, are, are the human messengers of the gospel, it, it's hard to say that verse 26 was fulfilled, that they saw the Son of Man. I, I don't think we can confidently pin down exact fulfilments for this. I think it's deliberately vague. Probably most natural to interpret as referring to both the immediate, short-term historical events and then the general Christian experience afterwards. But despite the vagueness, Jesus anchors it back for us in definite application. Look at verse 28. Look at the fig tree. It senses the changing season. It gets ready. And so when you look at it, you know summer's coming. It's a difficult analogy for us in Britain. It's hard to pin down sure signs of summer coming. About this time of year, I usually think it's gone. Um, Easier is winter, but that's the pessimist in me. When you see the leaves falling, winter's nearly here and it's going to last some time. But when you see the signs being fulfilled, you know the Son of Man's near. He's right at the door. And then we look back at verses 5 to 8. And doesn't it look like the news every day? We need to see that. That horrendous state that the world's in, it, it, it's not a surprise. It's not a sign of a disinterested or non-existent God. It's not failed goodness. Everything he's predicted is coming true. It's a sign that he's on his way and when his glory is revealed, there will be destruction. Stand ready for it. And that's the application he gives them in 32 onwards, isn't it? Stand ready, just as the master of a house would expect his servants to be ready and prepared when he gets home. So Jesus is coming. 
They're to stand ready. That's going to mean stepping out in faith, stepping away from the temple for them. Stepping away from the established religious leadership, not following them. Because that stuff is built on flawed foundations. It's going to crumble when the Son of Man's revealed. In fact, within a week of this conversation, Jesus has been crucified and the temple curtain is torn from top to bottom. The priests are out of a job. In 40 years, that temple mountain is desolate and that priesthood is wiped out, never to return. The, The rabbis fill their space. But the disciples, they've got a firm foundation. A lasting legacy. They're built on a different mountain. Their temple gets built on the mountain of crucifixion. Romans 8 verse 1 says, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. That's the old temple. Their temple will be built around the resurrected Jesus. Peter describes him as the living stone, the cornerstone of his church, the pattern and foundation for God's people. They have a firm foundation, a better temple, and they're called to live accordingly. Here's what Peter later writes about this. 2 Peter 3, verse 10 to 14, say, The day of the Lord will come like a thief. It's talking about the same stuff. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat, but in keeping with his promise... We are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless and at peace with him. That's how Peter said to respond. Stand ready for Jesus. Strive to live holy and godly lives. Look forward to Christ's return. Speed its coming in your prayers. Make every effort to be found spotless, ready for his return. I don't think we have to stretch to bring that application to us, do we? If this kind of passage, this language in Mark 13 is true, if that's reality, How will we live? Are you striving to be ready for Jesus? Do you long for his return? Does it excite and terrify you? It probably should be both. Do you keep watch for him? Do you you pray, come Lord Jesus, come? Because if he's the foundation on which we're built, if we dwell in his teaching, if we hunger to know him and fix our eyes on him, that, that's going to become second nature, isn't it? Or are you like me? And, and, and do you find yourself clinging to other temples, 
Do you build on other foundations? Do you get taken in by other promises? Is, is your security and your satisfaction nestled in, in social acceptance or academic success or the career ladder or the approval of your family or even fulfilling your duty in church? Obviously they're all good things, but any of them that aren't first and foremost built on Christ's foundations will not last when his glory is revealed. Not one stone will be left on another. What do I treasure? I need to stand firm on Jesus' foundation. I need to speed his coming. I need to keep watch and long only for him. Nothing else is valuable in comparison. Nothing else will endure when his glory is revealed. Let's pray. Lord God, there is no other firm foundation but your Son. All other ground is sinking sand. And when you reveal yourself, everything else will fade into obscurity. So help us then to stand firm in faith. Help us long to know you better, to hunger for your word, to speed your coming. Forgive us, Lord, because we look elsewhere. And help us to see you clearly so that we won't be taken in by other alluring promises which are ultimately false. May we grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ and give him glory. Amen.